Good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to take a moment to tell you, I know it's Sunday morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about what's happening on Wednesday nights. Um, at, uh, at 5.30 every Wednesday night, as many of you know, we have uh, a dinner. We have, we have dinner together every Wednesday night back in our fellowship center. And, and just for those of you who don't know, I think it might be important for you to recognize that uh, some of the growth that we've experienced has, has made it so that we're not really fitting in our fellowship center anymore. We, uh, uh, we, we have those picnic tables, and so on a normal Wednesday night, everyone spills out on those picnic tables. Really a lot of fun because you've got just tons of kids running around. It's like church camp just every Wednesday night's great, great meals and tons of, tons of people. Um, and, and so Daylight Savings is starting, as of course many of you know, thank you for being on time or not early. Um, we, we've hung those lights through the trees because now when we're eating dinner, it's going to be dark and we need to have a little bit of light over there to eat by. And if you've been kind of keeping up with where we are as a church, we are getting really close to uh, launching a new building campaign so that we will have a building that will hold our people so that we can have a meal together because that, that really is... Um, part of who we are as a, as a family, you know, as a church family. We, we're the kind of family that breaks bread together and eats together. And uh, there is something about Lakeside that's not trying to be something new. We're kind of an old-fashioned church. And in that way, we really, we really like that. We, we really don't uh, shrug off the fact that, or shrug off the fact that we, we are trying to be an old-fashioned church and have that Wednesday night meal together. And so um, a lot of good things going on there. But here's what I want to get to. The class that we're teaching on Wednesday night starts at 6 o'clock, 6.15. And uh, 6.15, but you can come at 6, it's fine, we'll have coffee ready for you. Um, it's over there in the Fellowship Center, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, we always have different kind of classes, but the one we started this last week is called Standing on the Shoulder of Giants. And the idea is that every week we, we spend uh, about an hour doing a biography of one of the great uh, leaders of the early church, or one of the great kind of maybe reformed leaders of the church. And so last week we did Augustine. And, and this week, I'm actually going to be doing uh, about an hour on Martin Luther. And like, I'm such a nerd. I could not be more excited than to do a one-hour teaching on Martin Luther. And especially, you know, Reformation Sunday was last week. And so uh, if, if that's something that interests you, I know that there are many other elders in the church that are going to be taking turns on this. That might be something you want to be a part of. But, but for now, this morning, what we believe is that uh, as we gather as the church, we are to to, to really center around the Word of God. And so I, I invite you to gather around the Word of God. We, we have been um, spending a long time in, in Matthew's gospel. It's really funny. People have been like, we're still in Matthew? And as a young preacher, I would have been like trying to figure out a way to get through it really fast because I'd have been afraid I was going to like lose people and it wasn't going to be, I don't know, it wasn't going to be interesting anymore. But as, an, as, a kind of, as I'm growing up, I'm kind of, I, I wear it as a badge of honor if it takes me two years to get through Matthew because it's all the story of Jesus and it's so good, right? It, it is so good. There is no need to rush through that. It's like a, it's like a great meal. Like, like if I'm eating a great steak, I don't want to just wolf it down. I want to just savor it. And that's kind of what I feel about Matthew. And so last week, we moved into a section of Matthew's gospel where we saw um, all these people responding to Jesus. And, we, and two of those responses, if you remember, is we saw the response of people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth and how when he went there, uh, they were initially um, confused and, uh, and, and there was a little bit of amazement, uh, but, but that slowly turned into an offense. They, the people in his hometown that knew him uh, rejected his claims to be the king of kings, and ultimately we see Nazareth reject Jesus' claims. And we also see the response of uh, King Herod Antipas, who was, he was overcome with the guilt of killing John the Baptist. And so when he realizes that Jesus is out there doing very similar miracles and has a similar message to John the Baptist, 
King Herod responds to Jesus with rejection, confusion, and terror because of the great sin in his own life. Now, Now today, today we pick up the story here following the death of John the Baptist. And, and make no mistake, I just I can't stress this enough, Jesus loved John the Baptist. And, and I think many of you know this, that, that, that John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin. And, uh, and last time we were together, we read, verse 14, 12, we read this, uh, which said, uh, and his disciples came, and they took his body, and, and they buried it, and they went and they told Jesus. So, these aren't, uh, when it talks about disciples here, these aren't Jesus' disciples. These are the disciples of, of John the Baptist. And they, they're, they're invited to come into the castle by Herod and to take John's beheaded body and, and to bury his body and to go in to tell Jesus that John the Baptist has, has been killed. And, and I want to read together today from the Gospel of Matthew. And this will be the last time, uh, but I want to tell you that that we do tend to stand here as as part of our way that we honor the Word of God read. So I invite you, if you're able to stand, as we read uh, Matthew 14, 13 through 22. And before we read, let's let's have a moment to pray for the Spirit to open our eyes to this text. Uh, Join me. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your Word. We recognize our great need for it because it is through your word that you chose to reveal your son Jesus to us. You chose to reveal your nature to us. And and part of that work of revelation is done as the spirit works in our hearts. So, Father, our prayer this morning is your church, is that your spirit would work in our hearts as we come to your word. And it would bring uh, understanding, conviction, repentance, and inspiration. We pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, Amen. All right, let's begin on the 13th verse. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They they said to him, we have only five loaves here and, and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pick up our reading in verse 13. We'll we'll, we'll take it a little bit at a time. It says this, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. What is it that Jesus hears? He hears of the death of John the Baptist. 
John has been savagely murdered. He's been beheaded after suffering in prison. And we get a glimpse here, it's a beautiful glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus withdrew from there to what? To a desolate place. That's the word it uses there. And, and you just got to understand this, that Jesus is heartbroken at the death of John. Have you ever experienced something like this in your life? Have you ever gotten that, that, that phone call that left you breathless? A knock on the door that everyone dreads? The Bible tells us very clearly that, that the last enemy to defeat is death. And we hold on to that promise because we know that death is a cruel foe. And the beauty of our scripture this morning is that we get to see just this, this glimpse of the humanity of Jesus when, when that reckless enemy of death strikes someone that Jesus loves. If, if you've experienced this yourself, maybe you know how Jesus felt in this moment. And, and again, Scripture says, Jesus desires, he desires solitude. He needs some time, and, and, and which is really hard for him to find for a few reasons. Partly because Jesus at this point, as we've been reading Matthew, you know that he's become a, a huge public figure. And, and, and this part of the world that he's in, it, is, it, it may not be how you imagined it, but you just need to know, just like currently the Gaza Strip or, or any of that area was so densely populated. Like you might imagine like large swaths of countryside when you hear all these biblical accounts, but, but the historians suggest that it was actually really hard in this area to find unpopulated areas. But that's what Jesus is looking for. He knows a place actually. It's a small mountaintop where he can spend some time alone with the Father. And at the same time, he wants to spend some time alone with his disciples. What do you think that, that Jesus is feeling here? I, I, I want to suggest to you that it's not simply the sting of, of John's death. Rather, John's death serves as, as a foreshadowing of his own death, of Jesus' own death. Jesus has to look at the violent death of John, and he has to be starkly aware of the 39 lashes that await him. Jesus has to be starkly aware of the, the bloody crown of thorns that will be placed upon his own head, the nails and the cross and the jeers of the crowd. And he just needs to get out of the public eye for a season, out of the view of Herod, who's probably looking at him as well. Jesus needs some solitude. Let me tell you the plan. I'm going to tell you his plan, and then we'll kind of look at how it kind of gets interrupted. Look at, let's look verse, we'll jump ahead to verse 23. Ready? Look at verse 23. This is what he has in mind. This is what Jesus wants. And he's going to get there, but it takes a while. It says this, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray, or by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. This is what Jesus is craving. This is what he wants. He wants to go up on the mountain and be there alone. This is the destination in the same way that Jesus needed to be alone uh, in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. And I want to suggest to you here that there's something to learn from Jesus. Where do you turn in, in your sorrow, in your fears, in your defeat when death robs you? Sometimes you need to leave the crowd for a few days. And you need to find solitude with God the Father. But at the same time, I, I, want, I want to suggest here that Jesus also wants to spend some time with the disciples. And, and so he invites them to come along. They're going to be in the boat with him when he goes. And he, I believe that he can do both things very well. He can have some, some quiet time with the disciples and then slip away with some quiet time 
with the Father. So they jump in a boat and they head out looking for solitude in the mountains there. And, and listen, I'm not completely sure what Galilee's version of the paparazzi looks like. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but there certainly were people who were watching Jesus' every move. And as soon as Jesus and the disciples get in the boat and they start heading out, the crowd starts scrambling to try to find out where they're going. And don't you know why? Do you know why? Every father who has a sick child who believes that Jesus has the power to heal, that, that father has already decided that he is willing to walk over broken glass to lay his child at the feet of Jesus and to beg Jesus to have mercy. And wouldn't you? Like, if this is what Jesus is doing, if he's going all throughout the countryside healing people, and you know he can do that, and you have a sick child, are you not watching and waiting and listening to find out where he might be? Like, every husband whose wife has a terminal illness is going to push his way through the crowd just for a chance to reach out to Jesus. And I'm telling you, you would do the same if you were desperate. In many cases, it's desperation that's fueling those in the crowd. And so you have Jesus and the disciples in the boat, and you have this mass of humanity running on the shore trying to figure out where Jesus is going to dock, and the majority of people are chasing Jesus out of desperation. And my question is, is can you feel the tension building? What does Jesus want? He wants to be alone. He wants to be with his disciples. He wants to be on the mountaintop with his father. What does everyone else want? They want the opposite of what Jesus wants. They want to be near him, to experience his power, to experience his grace, and it's just tension. And I'm guessing that, that if we're honest, some of you know what that feels like to, to kind of be at that place where you're, you're spent out, you're, you're given up, you're, you're broken, and you want to be alone with the Lord, but the people around you they continue to need you. And listen, I know that I've been that way at times. I get that way at times. Look at verse 14. It's beautiful. It says this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. By the time that Jesus and the disciples reached their destination, the crowd has already arrived, and his father's carrying their daughters and I love Jesus all the more for what happens next. Do you understand me? I love Jesus all the more for what happens next. I know he, he wants to rest and he wants to grieve, but the great compassionate king denies himself again, and King Jesus begins to heal. And so, church, I would say to you, behold your Savior. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What we see in Jesus is the very nature of God. Witness the compassion of your God. And my question for you again this morning is this. What kind of confidence should this give you as you consider how you approach God? Does your desperation look like those upon the shore? Surely the Lord will be so compassionate. Jesus heals all day long. That's what it says. He, he heals all day. And, and when evening comes, it's about, to be, it's about to be evening. It's late in the afternoon. The sun's getting low. Look what happens. Verse 15, it says this. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, 
This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. After watching Jesus heal all day, what the disciples say to him is, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. This, this crowd has followed us out here into the sticks. We're all getting kind of hungry. I'm sure they are too. Why don't you send them away because the sun's going down soon. Maybe it's not safe for them to travel when it's dark. And, and keep in mind that Jesus is always teaching his disciples. So what does Jesus say? Verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And what I need you to understand is the absurdity and the ridiculousness of this idea. Because I want to take a look with you at the situation and, and show you how absurd it is. The miracle that we're talking about here is recorded in all four of the Gospels. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. That probably means it's important, huh? Uh, look with me at verse 21. We're going to jump ahead a little bit, look at the end here. It says this, and those who ate were about what? 5,000 men besides women and children. And, and I want us to have a proper understanding of the size of the crowd. Matthew says that, that if you don't count, we're not counting the women and the children in the crowd, that there's 5,000 men. Commentators are going to suggest that this crowd that, that had gathered in this desolate place, desperate to be healed by Jesus, might have exceeded, you ready for this? I mean, 20,000 people. I don't know. If you've got 5,000 men and, and each of them has a wife and a couple kids or you have a, uh, those kids there, and, and that, that's just a, a lot of people to imagine up there on the shore. I imagine they all didn't come there at once, but it says they came from all the different cities, it says. And so trying to get my head on what 20,000 people would feel like or look like. I read online that the Brandon Amphitheater uh, seats about uh, 8,400 people. So the size of this crowd would be about what it would look like if you sold the Brandon Amphitheater out two and a half times. Sell that out two and a half times. That's about the kind of people in there. And, and think about the Brandon Amphitheater. Think about how they feed people and take care of their needs. Think about the trucks that you would have to back up into that place, the, the, the amphitheater, to unload concessions. And think about the hand carts and the workers would load the boxes into concession stands. And, and then think about this. Jesus and the disciples have just arrived on the shore in a small boat that they were paddling with oars. Jesus knows that they do not have enough food to feed this crowd. And yet, Jesus tells the disciples, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. What is Jesus up to? He could have just said, like, it would have been just really easy for him to say, don't worry, I got this. Don't stress because I'm about to do the miraculous. But instead, what does he do? He lays the burden upon the disciples. You give them something to eat, he says. Jesus wants them to, to wrestle with the fact that, they, that they, they don't have the means to solve this problem. And yet, even though they don't have the means to solve it, at the same time, he instructs them to solve it. And, and, and I was just kind of struck by this. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like ministry. Every ministry, every church, everyone who serves Christ sent out to make disciples of all nations 
and along the way to show the compassion of Jesus. And, and here's the truth. We don't have in ourselves what it takes to fix it. But we don't get to send the crowd away either. Imagine, and I was just thinking of examples here, imagine if our friends who started Shower Power said, we don't have enough food and clothing for the homeless in Jackson. Send them away. I think what happened is that, is that the Spirit spoke into the heart of those women who started Shower Power and said, you give them something to eat. Look at verse 17. Uh, they said to Jesus, we have only five loaves and, and two fishes. I mean, listen, the disciples were, were keenly aware that they did not have what the people needed. They had a little bit, but it would not suffice. Now, here's where the story turns. Here's the crux of this miracle. Ready? Verse 18. This is so important. And Jesus said, and he said, and bring them here to me. The measly five loaves and, and two fishes, bring them to me. If you were a cynical man, you would probably say, what are you going to do with this, Jesus? Give everybody a pinch of bread? The Gospel of John says, um, it, it's kind of comparable. It says, Andrew was the one who discovered the bread. And uh, look, at, look at what John 6, 19 says. Uh, it says, Andrew says to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus tells Andrew what he tells you, what he tells me. Bring what you have to me. And, and what Jesus does next is supernatural. That, that's the only way to explain it. Jesus can, can heal bodies. Jesus can mend flesh. Jesus was active in the creation of the world. He, he was producing everything in creation out of nothingness. And that same power of creation is going to be what's at work in the hands of Jesus here. Verse 19 says this. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And then the disciples gave them to the crowds. You see that order of operations? You can... Imagine trying to feed a crowd of, of thousands and they're all jockeying, pushing in for food. And so you see the wisdom that Jesus has in asking them to sit down so that distribution can happen orderly. He took the five loaves and the two fishes and, and he looks up to heaven and he says a, a blessing. And then it says this, and then he began breaking the bread. And he kept breaking the bread. And he kept breaking the bread. And he would give it back to his disciples and they would give it to the people. And you have to wonder at what point people began to realize something miraculous was happening. Because at first it probably felt normal. Like, okay, here, hand this out, hand this out. The miracle's almost hidden in that way, right? It probably all felt normal at first. Here, Andrew, hand this piece of bread out. And, and Andrew was probably like, okay, Jesus, but if you're going to give everybody this much, it's not going to go very far. And Jesus kept handing them handfuls of food. And I don't know when the crowd figured it out, but certainly someone would have started asking, where is all this food coming from? Verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. There are people who want to be Christians, yet they also want to reject the supernatural abilities of Jesus. Jesus. 
And, 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 and then they come to this story and they really struggle with it. And they, they struggle and they, and they twist themselves in all kinds of pretzels to try to explain away the miraculous. I've, I've heard the suggestion that people will say, well, maybe the crowd saw the generosity of the one boy. And so everybody started sharing what they had. And maybe that's the true miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And I want to show you why I think that doesn't work. Let me show you the reaction of the crowd and how the reaction of the crowd demonstrates uh, the miraculous work of Jesus. Look at John 6, 14 through 15. We're going to look at this. It says this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they perceived that they were about to come, uh, excuse me, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Uh, John uses the word signs here, and if you're familiar with uh, the the gospel of John, signs in in, in his gospel mean miracles. And so when the crowd saw the miracles of Jesus, they tried to take him and make him king by force. And, And they were saying to themselves, like, if Jesus can heal bodies and he can miraculously create food, surely he can overthrow the Romans. What do we need Herod for? Let's make Jesus our king. And some of you are probably asking, like, isn't that what Jesus wants? Isn't that what all this has been about, is that he wants people to see him as the great king of kings? I want to say a few things. There, first off, there's no way that this crowd would be trying to make Jesus their king unless what they had witnessed was a true miracle. I also want to tell you that Jesus was not interested in being a political leader. The throne that Jesus seeks is one that rules men's hearts. Jesus does not want to be an earthly king. Jesus wants to be the king of your heart. That is to say that Jesus wants you to order your life by his teachings and his commandments. You see, the crowd understands something about his greatness, but they, but they miss what it means to truly submit to Jesus as Lord. We come to that time in the sermon where we ask some questions about, so what? Let me, let me ask you some questions as we come to the end of this story. First one is, what did we learn about Jesus? What was he trying to teach his disciples? And what can we implement from this teaching personally. First off, what did we learn about Jesus? A lot. We saw his humanity in the face of death. We saw that Jesus was grieved by the death of John. And that in his grief, he realized that that he needed to be alone with the Father. But we also see the great compassion and the self-denial of Jesus. Where Jesus denies himself the rest that he so desires so that he can meet the need of those who are on the shore. And as I was reading that, I just thought to myself, sometimes that's what it takes, isn't it? Do we have to to at times choose between our rest and the needs of others? Jesus seems to navigate that road well. He's on his way to rest. He's, He's moving towards that, but he stops and ministers to others along the way. And thinking of that, I... I don't know, I I guess I was struck with thankfulness for all those deacons and all those workers who showed up last Saturday and like gave up a day of rest, a day that they probably set aside to to not have to go to their jobs, but to be here doing things for, for the kingdom and for the church. So thank you for that. 
What is Jesus trying to teach his disciples? Why not just create a bunch of bread and have the disciples hand it out? Why ask them to meet the need? I think it's so that they might first realize that they don't have in themselves what the crowd needs. What the crowd needs only Jesus can provide. But also that they might realize that Jesus is asking them to take what little bit that they have and bring it to him so that he might do something miraculous by it. So finally, the question is, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? And I'm going to make an assumption this morning, and you know I do this often when it comes to, to preaching. I, I'm going to assume this morning that I'm preaching first and foremost to Christians. I'm preaching first and foremost to the church. I'm going to assume that you are called by Christ, that your call is to be salt and light and to make dis disciples of all nations, and, and, and that your call is to share in the ministry of compassion with Jesus. I want you to know that you do not have what is needed to accomplish the call of Christ. You are not equipped to fix the brokenness of the world. People need Jesus. They don't need you. But what you have to bring, Jesus calls you to do so. What you have to bring is like a couple of fish and a few loaves. It's not going to go very far for 20,000 people. But this is what Jesus says to the disciples, and he says it to us, to us all. Bring to me that which you have, and watch what I do with it. That's the message of faithfulness this morning. Bring what you have and lay it at the feet of Jesus, and watch what he does with it. And so I'm, I'm just going to say this. It is 100% coincidental that I preached this sermon, and it happened to coincide with Jay getting up here and talking about pledge cards. I did not intend for that to happen. And I, and I think this illustration can be about so much more than money. But let's be honest. Part of this is about money. You might not think that your giving makes much of a difference. It may seem like a, a widow's might to you. But let me assure you that Jesus can do miraculous things when you trust him with your time, when you trust him with your treasure and your talents. And so I pray that, that like Jesus... Your heart, though it may be weary, has compassion for those who were lost. And just as Jesus urged the disciples not to send the crowds away, but to feed them themselves, I pray that you would feel the responsibility, the heavy weight to participate in the ministry of the kingdom. This is about sharing in the work and the responsibility of the ministry of the kingdom right here. The call of this story is to bring to Jesus what you have. And so some opportunities to do that in our community. As you know, in February, we're going to have a, a retreat here on a Saturday where we're going to be doing evangelism training. Come and be part of that. Come and join us as we feed the hungry every 60 days at Shower Power. Come after the services today at noon and hear about going to Belize. Jesus says, bring it to me, that which you have, that you might watch me do the miraculous. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the call of Jesus and, and the training of his disciples, which we get to watch secondhand through the revelation of the Holy Spirit Scripture. May you convict us as you convicted the disciples, Father. 
that we would bring what we have and join in the ministry of compassion. Christ, we trust you. We love you. We, we, we were in awe and worship to you, of you through the sermon today as we read about your great acts of kindness, your grace, and, and your power. May you always be worshiped in your church now and forever. And all the people said, amen. Amen. Amen.